This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. I'd like to welcome you to today's podcast. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. The topic today is the use of azithromycin in cystic fibrosis and its impact on respiratory pathogens. We're joined today by Dr. Jonathan Kogan, who co-authored a manuscript entitled Chronic Azithromycin Use in Cystic Fibrosis and Risk of Treatment-Emergent Respiratory Pathogens. Dr. Kogan is Acting Assistant Professor in the Division of Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine, Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. Welcome, Dr. Kogan, and thanks very much for participating in this podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So I'm particularly interested in this topic as I have a clinical interest in bronchiectasis. And as you know, macrolide therapy is one of the treatment options for which we have efficacy data. There has been a lot of concern, though, about the possible adverse impact on microbiology. So I'm very interested uh, in hearing what you have to say, uh, not only in CF, but potentially in in other separative airways diseases. So let's go ahead and get started. So John, I thought we would start by, by really just having you summarize the relevant anti-inflammatory and immunomodulatory effects of azithromycin and the rationale for its chronic use in cystic fibrosis. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you again for having me um, to talk about this, I think really important issue. Well, we know that individuals with CF develop chronic airway inflammation that's typically secondary to the, the chronic bacterial colonization that they have and an inability to mobilize mucus. And more specifically, you know, the chronic airway inflammation results from both epithelial and immune cell secretion of pro-inflammatory mediators and pro-inflammatory cytokines that actually promote neutrophil migration into the airways. And since this is a, a chronic insult that happens over years, you know, lots of neutrophils are going to be present in those airways. We know this from BAL studies from CF patients that illustrate really impressive neutrophilic inflammation. Neutrophils themselves will release proteases like neutrophil elastase, and neutrophil elastase is one of those players that will ultimately erode and break apart the airway over time that actually will lead to, to bronchiectasis. So with all of that, we know that with, with respect to CF, interest has been interest over the years has been um, in trying to figure out certain types of therapies that can help decrease inflammation. Ibuprofen is actually a drug that's been studied for several years and has been found to halt and reduce lung function decline in CF. And so we knew that anti-inflammatory therapies have some potential for this. Zithromycin, more specifically, you know, is a second-generation macrolide antibiotic, and it's been shown in vitro to reduce pro-inflammatory mediators and cytokines like TNF-alpha and others, both in alveolar macrophages and in CF airway epithelial cells. And fewer pro-inflammatory mediators means fewer neutrophils. And so this, I think, is sort of the rationale for using azithromycin in this population. So what's the current CF Foundation guideline regarding the use of chronic azithro in, uh, in CF? So the, the most recent guidelines are from 2013, and they're on guidelines looking at chronic medications for maintenance of lung health, and were actually published in the Blue Journal, the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. They have two separate guidelines depending on your Pseudomonas aeruginosa or PA status. For PA positive patients that are six years and older, the recommendation is actually to use chronic azithromycin, which they define as three times weekly, to both improve lung function and reduce pulmonary exacerbations. And I think this guideline is in part from some of the landmark studies that Lisa Salmon did with her colleagues in both 2003 and in 2010. The 2003 study was a randomized trial looking at azithromycin use 
in PA-positive patients, and then the 2010 study was looking at the PA-negative patients. So for PA-positive patients, six years and older, zithromycin is recommended to improve lung function and then reduce exacerbations. For pseudomonas-negative patients that are six years and older, the guidelines do note that zithromycin can be considered to reduce pulmonary exacerbations, but there's no mention specifically about improving lung function. We do know that azithromycin is used really quite frequently, and the uh, CF patient registry, you know, a wonderful database that was put out by the CF Foundation, publishes a yearly registry report, and the 2016 registry report notes that eligible patients that are pseudomonas positive and six years of age, of those, about 66% are taking azithromycin. So clinicians are certainly using this quite frequently. Are there any, are there any uh, guidelines regarding how long you use um, azithromycin for in CF patients? Is it indefinite? Is it is it limited? Where do we stand on that? That's a great question. To my knowledge, there are no specific guidelines that have evaluated how long we should be using azithromycin for. Those two landmark randomized trials that I mentioned in 2003 and 2010, I believe, looked at patients for a six-month period. I do know that there is interest in looking at long-term azithromycin use just with respect to clinical outcomes and whether it does still continue to improve lung function and reduce pulmonary exacerbations over time. Though, to my knowledge, I haven't seen any any published studies about this. And thus, I think for this reason, the guidelines are unable to make any mention of it. One of the reasons I asked is that, you know, uh, chronic macrolides have been shown in several studies now to reduce the frequency of exacerbations in, in non-CF-related bronchiectasis. But in clinical practice, we really don't have any uh, data about how long to continue. And in an older group of patients that, for example, I and my colleagues see, that becomes a relevant question, you know, once you get beyond you know, 12 months, which is what most of our studies have looked at. So we'll come back um, and try to see how we can draw some parallels with, with non-CF bronchiectasis. But, but before that, let's go into your study. So what was your hypothesis regarding chronic azithromycin therapy and the risk of treatment emergent pathogens? And I, I, I'd like you to, John, just address what prior data, what did prior data indicate? And then we'll come back again to the specific pathogens, but what organisms were you specifically concerned about? Absolutely. So with respect to studies that have done prior to our analysis, the three most uh, commonly studied pathogens were primarily staph, staph aureus, aspergillus infection, and then also non-tuberculous mycobacterium. And those were sort of the past studies that informed a little bit of the analysis that we wanted to do. We do know that for staph aureus, at least, azithromycin use has actually been associated with less staph in, in a study from Denmark, but they did find that there was more macrolide um, resistance. With respect to the two trials that I had mentioned, the 2003 study of PA-positive patients and the 2010 study of PA-negative patients, in that first study, chronic azithromycin use was associated with less staph. But interestingly, in the 2010 study of PA-negative patients, there was more staph and more specifically more MRSA in the AZM group, though admittedly those numbers were, were very small. It was only a handful of patients. With respect to aspergillus, while it is still potentially up for debate on whether aspergillus is considered a, a respiratory pathogen, or just some sort of colonizer that we just happen to see in CF. We do know, at least from a study from France, that chronic azithromycin use was associated with more aspergillus colonization and detection. And I think we all can agree that antibiotic use in general is probably associated with aspergillus. And then probably most importantly are the studies that have looked at non-tuberculous mycobacterium. And here's where some of the studies have suggested positive association, others have suggested more of a negative association. There were a couple small studies done from Israel and England that found a positive association between chronic azithromycin and detection of non-tuberculous mycobacterium. These studies were smaller studies, and the one from Israel was interesting because the prevalence of NTM was actually quite high. I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 
15 or 20 percent, which is higher than what we see here, at least in the U.S. And these studies prompted a, a large case control study that was done by Dr. Binder and colleagues in 2013. And they did a great analysis using the CF Foundation patient registry and found that AZM patients were actually less likely to culture NTM compared to patients that were not on it. Uh, though this study certainly has its its issues and limitations, particularly related to indication bias, which is something that we really wanted to address with our study. So those three sort of informed our initial choice of pathogens to look at. And then we ultimately decided to just broaden out and look at other pathogens that we considered to be important for CF. And ultimately we hypothesized that chronic azithromycin use among patients with CF would increase the risk of acquisition of these specific pathogens that we decided to include. So we included MRSA, non-tuberculous mycobacterium, and aspergillus. We also included Stenotrophomonas monsophilia, acromobacter, dilosoxidans, pseudomonas, along with multidrug-resistant pseudomonas, and then Burkholderia cepacea complex as well. So tell us about your study design, and in particular, uh, for those of us who um, are not experts in, in, uh, in, in different study designs, what's a new user propensity score-matched cohort study? Yeah, so really, when it comes to observational studies and observational research, what I have learned through my, my training thus far is it's extremely important to try to adjust and at least address indication bias. Indication bias essentially arises because treatment is never prescribed at random in clinical practice. It's always going to be based on a decision by a clinician that's related primarily to disease severity, along with other demographic and clinical characteristics that may affect the risk of a future health outcome. So for example, the choice of using azithromycin in clinical practice is likely related to disease severity or some other thing. It's not random. So it's really important to try to address this when you do observational research. There are numerous ways to do this and that have been published in the literature. The most common one and the ones that we typically see in medical studies are just the use of logistic and linear regression models that will adjust for the pertinent characteristics that you feel are associated with any given treatment or any given outcome. We ultimately decided to address indication bias by using this technique that is called propensity score matching. And essentially, this tool is actually becoming more popular in the analysis of observational studies within the medical field along with other fields as well. And what it does is it allows for a reduction in the effect of confounding because of differences in the distribution of certain baseline characteristics that are present between the groups. And in this case, it would be different characteristics among AZM users and AZM non-users. So this propensity score is a likelihood that a given individual would be in the treatment group or given azithromycin, given a set of the measured covariables or, co or characteristics that are available. The idea ultimately is to match patients so that measured confounders or characteristics that you care about are equally distributed between treatment and comparison groups. This matching, what makes it even more interesting is that it also occurs before the observational study before the observational period of the study, just like it would in a randomized control trial. Importantly, of course, with all observational studies, however, we're not able to address any unmeasured confounders and really any form of methods that you use to address indication bias in observational research is never going to be able to do that with the unmeasured confounders. What I think is really interesting, and I sort of had to delve a lot into these propensity scores as I was doing uh, this analysis, is that there are debates on really how you choose the variables that need to be included in your propensity score. Some authors in the statistical field recommend including variables really only associated with either the treatment or the outcome, while others actually recommend including all variables that could theoretically be related to the treatment and the outcome. In our case, we ultimately decided to use the latter approach. We, we chose variables a priori 
that we thought could be related to the treatment, which in this case is AZM use, and the outcome, which are the pathogens. So one of the major drawbacks, though, of propensity score matching is you end up losing a lot of patients during the matching process because patients need to be similar based on a whole variety of characteristics. And the more characteristics that you use, the harder it is to find a, a given match. What was nice for our analysis was we had such a large sample size to begin with using this the CF Foundation Patient Registry that we still had tons of power to be able to do the analysis that we wanted. The new user design is more just to avoid the prevalent use because patients that are on azithromycin conceivably could have received benefit. They could have had improved lung function or pulmonary or fewer pulmonary exacerbations. And by including those with new users, it would affect the results of the study. Uh, we also really just wanted to eliminate prevalent users because our goal all along was to try to mimic a randomized controlled trial as best we could. So tell us, tell us just uh, briefly about the study design. You know, we talked about the pathogens that, pathogens that you looked for, but just uh, give us a little bit of an insight as to, as to the core study design. So it was primarily an, it was an observational study with the goal of trying to look for the different pathogens. And we ultimately were interested in treatment emergent pathogen acquisition, which we defined as new detection of any of the given pathogens. But because it was new detection, we ultimately needed to exclude patients with recent respiratory cultures that were positive for a given pathogen. For example, if we're looking for new MRSA, if you had a history of MRSA within two years, we excluded that patient because we wanted it to be new. And we decided ultimately to assemble separate cohorts for each pathogen. This was a lot of work for our biostatistician who uh, put a, a lot of effort in because each, each cohort ended up being a whole separate analysis in and of itself. We included patients six to three. We chose the six cutoff, the, the lower age cutoff, because that was the recommendation from the CF Foundation for the initiation of azithromycin. And we chose the latter cutoff to avoid the inclusion of older, healthier patients that may ultimately affect generalizability. And then for NTM specifically, our lower age cutoff was 12 and older because NTM can really only be isolated from sputum rather than OP culture. And we know that most children under the age of 12 are unable to expectorate. So John, did you look at other pathogens that could develop azithromycin resistance like Haemophilus species or pneumococcus? We ultimately decided not to look at those. And it's a great question and a great point. It was brought up by one of the reviewers as well. We ended up not including them because the prevalence of these typically is so high, even in young ages, that it would probably have limited our sample size to the point where we would not have been able to adjust or include enough patients in our sample. At the same time, though, it's an it's extremely important point. And particularly for patients that have non-CF bronchiectasis, it'd be probably nice to have seen that. So, John, you mentioned that you assembled separate cohorts for each pathogen. How did you define these cohorts? So ultimately, with respect to the, the pathogens, it was really just the first detection of each pathogen based on respiratory cultures that were collected in the CF patient registry. And that is certainly important for, for many of these organisms, in particular Pseudomonas, multidrug-resistant Pseudomonas, MRSA, and others. I know it, there's a bit of a debate with NTM and whether you would start treatment or, or actually do something about a first case of NTM in an otherwise asymptomatic patient, but that was still the way we ultimately defined it. So once you developed the pathogen of choice that you were looking for, then the study ended for that given patient. Got it. Thanks. So this was a really large study, almost 27,000 patients, more than 7,300 of whom met the eligibility criteria. Uh, so were there any significant differences between the azithromycin users and non-users at baseline? Sure. So prior to the propensity score matching, given all of our inclusion criteria, we ended up comparing AZM new users to non-users and had 3,080 patients in the azithromycin new user group and 4,250 in the 
ASIM non-user group, the average age for each cohort was pretty similar. It was about 17 years in each of the cohorts. And then I think unsurprisingly to us and the rationale and the reason for using propensity score matching in the first place is that AZM users on average definitely were sicker than the non-users. They had a lower lung function at baseline based on FEV1% predicted of 82% versus 88%. They had a higher rate of CF-related diabetes, 13.6% versus 9.6%. And AZM users were also more likely to have had at least two pulmonary exacerbations requiring IV antibiotics over the previous 12 months, and that was 47% versus 31%. What was nice, though, was following our propensity score matching for each of the, the given study pathogens, so for each of the study-specific cohorts, the differences that we saw here between the AZM users and non-users went away, which indicated that our propensity score matching was successful in minimizing differences between the users and non-users in those measured study variables. So what'd you find? <laughs> so a lot of data, um, and I was hoping that, that we could talk about sort of the big pathogens like MRSA and NTM and certainly Pseudomonas. So why don't you summarize the global findings and maybe we can speak uh, specifically about some of the major, uh, the major bugs. So with respect to chronic AZM users, we found that they had a significantly lower risk of detection of three specific pathogens, MRSA, NTM, and Burkholderia cepatia complex. No differences were ultimately seen for the remaining pathogens, though I would highlight that a, a trend was seen towards a higher risk of multidrug-resistant pseudomonas detection in AZM users compared to non-users. The hazard ratio was 1.31 with a p-value of 0.09, and a subtrend was also seen in a sub-cohort analysis that really just evaluated the risk of new multidrug-resistant pseudomonas in just pseudomonas-positive patients only. So I think we were, for the most part, reassured um, by these, though certainly we can we could talk more about these results uh, in addition to the, the multi-drug resistant pseudomonas finding as well. So were you surprised by the findings based on your initial hypothesis? I don't know if we were necessarily surprised for a couple of these specific organisms. I think with respect to uh, NTM and non-tuberculosis mycobacterium, we were not completely surprised, particularly with the results that Dr. Binder's group had done with their 2013 case control study. We know that azithromycin has in vitro activity against mycobacterium avium complex and is also one of a few antimicrobacterial oral agents for some species of mycobacterium abscessus It's actually used for treatment of that in CF. So this could certainly explain some of the lower NTM rates. In addition, azithromycin is actually used as prophylaxis against NTM for HIV-infected patients with low CD4 counts. So there's definitely some biological possibility and explanations around the NTM findings. With respect to MRSA, similarly, we know that azithromycin, well, maybe not the first line or even second line therapy to treat MRSA infections, AZM does have some antibacterial activity against it. So we thought that could be a potential explanation for that finding. The, the Burkholderia cepatia complex finding, that one was a little bit curious to us. And to be honest, I think even now we're not really sure what to make of it. The only thing that we could think of was perhaps patients who are on azithromycin may have improved lung function compared to patients that are not, and that may make them less susceptible to having a Burkholderia cepatia Burkholderial species, but certainly this association needs much more uh, exploring. I, I guess I would make a point about the, the multidrug-resistant pseudomonas findings, again, while not statistically significantly different, there was some sort of trend, and there definitely is logical possibility for this, and this is the one that sort of gave us a bit of pause. We know that azithromycin has been shown to actually turn on efflux pumps in the cell that can confer resistance to both fluoroquinolones and aminoglycosides mainstay in therapy for patients with pseudomonas. One of the downsides actually, as it turns out of our study, was the removal of those prevalent AZM users that we talked about at the beginning. That left our cohort as primarily a pediatric cohort. And 
in a way, because multidrug resistant pseudomonas is very unusual in pediatric patients, we may have actually been underpowered to detect a difference in MDRPA acquisition between AZM users and non-users. In hindsight, looking back, I almost wonder if we could have tried to create a different cohort that would have looked at that question for the MDRPA patients. Was the exposure, and I don't know if you can tell from the study, was the exposure to anti-pseudomonal antibiotics similar um, in, in the ASI or the azithromycin group versus the non-users? I, we, we looked at the exposure with respect to IV antibiotics over the study period, and that was essentially the same in, in, in the pseudomonas groups. We were unable, though, to capture adequately and confidently oral antibiotic exposure, and that was one of the limitations of the study. At the, the times that we were using the data for in the CF registry, they had not started accurately capturing those. They're doing that more recently now, but it wasn't available um, at the beginning. But that certainly is, is another potential explanation, really, for some of, some of our findings. Yeah, it's, it's actually very interesting because, um, in, and again, in the, in the three studies that have been published um, in azithromycin and non-CF bronchiectasis, this is all of which showed a decrement in, in the frequency of exacerbations. There's, if you looked at, at the data a little more deeply, patients who have pseudomonas, uh, chronic pseudomonas infection, appear to have the most benefit. And as far as I can tell, uh, I haven't seen reports of MDR pseudomonas um, developing in these folks. It's just very interesting. Uh, and your explanation for the possible mechanisms are very interesting. Certainly worth keeping an eye on um, um, as azithromycin is used pretty commonly in CF and and and, and increasingly commonly in, in non-CF bronchiectasis. Um, one of the potential uh, negative conse- consequences of chronic azithromycin use, as you pointed out in your paper, John, is is the development of macrolide resistance uh, in NTM species uh, like my- mycobacterium complex. Um, were you able to ascertain that in your study? That's a great question and certainly something that I, I am also extremely interested in myself. Unfortunately, the, the CF Foundation patient registry, while really extremely robust and complete, does not capture currently macrolide resistance. So that was something we were unable to look at ourselves. I believe that there are investigators from Colorado, actually, though, that are working on a data repository uh, collecting NTM isolates from CF patients from around the country and maybe hopefully can report on some of these sorts of things, particularly with macrolide resistance in the future. Um, similarly about, I, I guess the answer will be the same, but I'll ask it anyway about new MRSA detection. So cr- clearly, you know, Derkman in, in the development of new MRSA infection is a great thing for these folks. But again, um, can you, anything about macrolide resistance or the potential adverse consequences of that moving forward? Yeah, unfortunately, our analysis was unable to evaluate for this with the specific data set that we had. But I will say that there have been lots of studies that we had previously mentioned here and even others that have certainly found an increase in macrolide resistance to staff, both MSSA and MRSA. So it's definitely a, a risk that needs to be weighed against the potential benefits for sure. Are there any other any other uh, results or any other data that, that came out of your study that, that you'd like to, to bring out to the audience, John? No, I think, you know, these are the, the prominent findings, and, and certainly we did the best we could to try to answer this question using observational data that was available to us. And what's nice about using observational data is you can use it, you can perform a study in a cost-effective way, in a pretty fast way, certainly in comparison to randomized control trials. But of course, it is prone to, to numerous limitations, and th- those need to be acknowledged. Um, certainly, when you think about the results and how you interpret the results, and know that moving forward to really answer these questions, we need more prospective studies that can evaluate these issues. So actually, can you highlight some of the limitations for us? Yeah, certainly. So we definitely acknowledge several very important limitations. The first and 
really perhaps most important is, is still going to be residual indication bias. This is namely that we were unable to address those unmeasured confounders that we had talked about earlier that have influenced our results. Certainly misclassification of variables is always present in observational research, and it's certainly possible that azithromycin use, respiratory culture results, or other covariates may ultimately have been misclassified, though we don't think there is any reason to suspect that this particular bias would be higher in one group or another. It still could potentially have influenced the results. And then, as I mentioned earlier, due to our study design, our, our rigorous way to try to adjust for indication bias with our propensity score matching and our new user analysis, we ended up generating this primarily pediatric cohort, which definitely can lead to issues with generalizability. Though admittedly, I will say as a pediatrician, it's nice to have a primarily pediatric study every now and again in, in CF. <laughs> Great. So John, chronic macrolides, as I've said, have been shown to reduce the frequency of exacerbations in patients with bronchiectasis is unrelated to CF. And, and certainly the same concerns about treatment emergent pathogen uh, exist in those patients as well. So I'm asking you to hypothesize here, but do you think you would see similar findings as yours if you studied an adult population with bronchiectasis? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. And I, I'm not sure I really have have an answer uh, for sure, but I would say, you know, the nature of CF lung disease, at least in, in CFTR abnormalities, leads to chronic bacterial colonization with what we would call more atypical organisms like Pseudomonas, Stenotrophomonas, Acromobacter, et cetera. From my understanding, at least, in, in certain non-CF bronchiectasis conditions like PCD and others, you, you may not see these like Stenotrophomonas or Acromobacter, more unusual ones, though Pseudomonas and certainly H. flu and Strep pneumo are more common. I would think it's at least plausible that AZM can protect patients from these more typical bugs like H. flu and Strep pneumo through its antibacterial activity, though, of course, there is a balance that needs to be played with the, the minimization of macrolide resistance uh, for these particular organisms. But I, I'd definitely be interested in your thoughts as well as, a, as an expert in bronchiectasis. Um, yeah, so uh, I don't know the answer to the question either, mostly because there's, there's very little data about this. Um, in the studies, in the three studies that were published, microbiology was not included in all of them. But I think there is some concern that some of the typical gram-positive organisms uh, could develop a clinically significant resistance patterns, but, but certainly that wasn't touched on in the study, and I haven't seen anything uh, since then. My suspicion is that we may see the same kind of data that you saw um, in the MRSA patients, although uh, it's probably not as big a problem in the older population as it is in a group of patients with CF. The, the one thing that I was, would be interested in certainly is, is in the issue of, uh, of, of pseudomonas. Um, and in the accumulated experience, interestingly, azithromycin appears to have a particularly good impact on those patients who have chronic pseudomonas infection with regard to their um, exacerbations and the frequency of the exacerbations. And to my knowledge, we've actually not seen the emergence of, of an MDR pseudomonas pathogen. We think that's much more likely related to, um, you know, their antibiotic treatments before that, specifically mm -hmm. multiple of quinolone. So, um, but I was actually surprised that, that there was a trend um, about MDR uh, acquisition in your study. The most important thing, as far as I'm concerned, and the most important concern right now in, in our patients is the issue of NTM resistance. Certainly, we know that the biggest risk factor for, um, for macrolide resistance in NTM patients, particularly MAC, is prior use of azithromycin or macrolide monotherapy. And we know that there's a potential adverse impact 
there was a study um, by Dr. David Griffiths from the University of Texas and Tyler that looked at a group of patients who had macrolide resistance and had persistently positive cultures and smears, and they had a mortality rate that was far uh, higher than that was reported in patients who had macrolide-sensitive organisms. So uh, that's a specific concern um, and one I think we're going to have to keep an eye on. So thanks for asking for my opinion, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. So I have a provocative question for you. So the FDA is certainly concerned about treatment emergent resistant pathogens for people on chronic antibiotics, whether they be systemic or inhaled in a group of patients with, with chronic airways disease. So based on the data that, that you've presented, um, do you think the FDA and those of us who see these patients should be reassured, or is it, um, is it still early in this game? Yeah, I think that's a really great question and a really important question. I guess I would definitely say it's still early in the game, but I would be, I guess, somewhat reassured perhaps that at least in our pediatric cohort with the available data that we had, that chronic azithromycin did not seem to lead to an earlier acquisition of any of the pathogens um, that we studied, of course, with the caveat of the multidrug-resistant pseudomonas work that we previously discussed. Um, with that said, this is definitely a, you know, a question that's very important, not only for individual patients with CF and other non-CF bronchiectasis conditions, but really for the, the public health at large, are we as providers by the use of chronic antibiotics actually leading to not only more resistance, but also earlier acquisition of, of organisms that can potentially be deleterious? And I, I would echo your, your concerns about the macrolide-resistant NTM infections, and I think that would be a really important next step uh, with looking at the use of chronic azithromycin is, is are you seeing a lot of that and is it leading to more treatment failures both within CF and outside of it? Well said. Um, obviously, your study was, was really very well done and, again, very provocative. So are there any next steps being planned? Are there any future studies uh, that you and your colleagues are, are considering or, or planning? Well, I think, you know, one thing that you had asked early on was whether we know that azithromycin longer term actually leads to improved clinical outcomes. Does the use of azithromycin after 12 months improve lung function? Does it reduce pulmonary exacerbations? Those sorts of things. So I think another next step would be to actually look at, look at the data and see, is azithromycin actually helping over those periods of time? Or is azithromycin really a therapy that's going to work in a short burst, a six to 12 month kind of period? And that could potentially inform our next steps with how we even use azithromycin. If it's found to be helpful, then it certainly you know, provides a, a, a larger case of wanting to continue this therapy indefinitely. But if it's found to no longer be helpful, then certainly some of the risks that we've discussed, you know, may outweigh any potential benefit of continuing the therapy. So I think that's certainly something that we're interested in working on. And some of our colleagues um, at the Therapeutic Development Network here in Seattle are actually working on that, that I'm going to be able to be a part of as well. So I'm excited to, to work on that a little bit more closely. And we're certainly looking forward to seeing this. Um, any last thoughts or comments, John? No, I think this was a you know really interesting study for me moving forward, learning about study design and, and how you deal with indication bias and observational research. And I think I'm going to certainly try to take these methods moving forward as I read future studies that use observational data uh, to look at clinical outcomes to ensure that indication bias is adjusted for and also uh, just to allow the results to be understandable and, and hopefully generalizable. Well, congratulations on, on this study, John, and I wish you all the best of luck uh, for your future projects. So again, I'd like to thank Dr. Kogan for participating in the podcast. I hope you found today's discussion on the impact of azithromycin and CF as interesting and as thought-provoking as I have. Until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS, 
Thank you for joining in.